Hello, my friends. Welcome to Word Made Digital. I'm your host, Joanna LaFleur. This is season seven, episode five. Today, we're talking to Daniel Yang. Daniel Yang is the director of the SEND Institute out of Wheaton College and the Billy Graham Center. So maybe you've heard of those organizations. And I got to know him when he was a church planner here in my city of Toronto, downtown Toronto. And so I can't wait for you to get to know Daniel. He's a very researched, educate, educated, thoughtful, insightful kind kind of person. And so you're going to love the conversation. But of course, we wouldn't be able to bring in this podcast to you without our sponsors like Compassion Canada. Christmas is coming. There's still time to get gifts from their catalog. I'm going to tell you about that. And of course, if you're looking into the new year and your church website, your personal website, and you're thinking it needs a change, needs a facelift, the Church Co. is an amazing company. You've got to hear about them. And I got a discount code for you if you want to build a website. So we'll tell you about that later. But in the meantime, we are launching the new year. Um, and one of the things we're doing as a project that we'd like to tell you about is we're going to be starting a weekly newsletter. And this newsletter is not just more junk for you. We actually want to add real value, give you up to the up to the week updates on what's going on in the world of digital and as it affects you as a Christian, as a church leader. And also we hope to entertain you a little bit. We're going to we're going to have some good content in there. We want you to get on that email list. Come check it out. Hey, you can always subscribe if you didn't find value from it. But the, one of the easiest ways you can subscribe is you can do it by joining our Digital Church Facebook group. If you haven't yet joined the Digital Church Facebook group, go find the link in our show notes. We uh, would love you to join, or you can just go to Facebook and search digital church. The Facebook group will come up and it's a group of uh, pastors, leaders, thinkers, ministry, and church Christian type people who are just all wanting to talk around this conversation. What is digital church? How do we do discipleship, evangelism, outreach? How do we do this for our own journey and spiritual formation in this digital age? So we can't wait for you to join us there. And, you know, meanwhile, uh, keep enjoying this podcast because we're going to be talking to Daniel Yang. He's a director of the Send Institute. As I said, he's leading and overseeing all kinds of initiatives there. But before that, he was this church planner in Toronto where I met him and he's had all kinds of experience recruiting, assessing, and training church planters. That's kind of his main thing. Now, he has a whole bunch of degrees behind his name, and uh, he started out his career more in like an engineering direction before coming into church land. And he's um, really all about global, uh, global faith, multiculturalism, and how to engage our churches in that conversation. So can't wait for you to enjoy this conversation with Daniel Yang. Welcome to the Word Made Digital Podcast with Joanna LaFleur. You're listening to Season 7. Word Made Digital brings you interviews with Christian creatives and communicators to inspire, challenge, and equip you in your own work. The church has the best news in the world, so we want to help you be the best communicators in the world. Here we go. Daniel Yang, welcome to Word Made Digital. I'm really glad to have you on the podcast today. Joanna, I'm so honored that you've got me on, and uh, I miss my time in Toronto being neighbors with you. So, uh, Well, I'm back in that neighborhood where we met. Um, yeah, yeah. People are going to listen to a little inside chat here for a second. I'm in Regent Park again. I... I, uh, I've moved back to this neighborhood just in the last few months because I bought a condo here years ago and it mm-hmm. took a few years for them to build it. So now I'm in that home 
that they that uh, they built. But yeah, we obviously we met in Regent Park when you were church planting. So mm-hmm. um, maybe just as a bridge into, can you give a little introduction of who you are? I know you as. Daniel, who church planted in Toronto, <laughs> all the way from America to Toronto. Yep. Uh, but I, I'd love you to just introduce yourself a bit, and then we'll dive into a conversation. We want to talk about church planting. I want to talk about this post-COVID world. I want to talk about multiculturalism in the church, what um, the minority churches can teach the majority churches, all that kind of stuff. So awesome. before we go too far, who are you, Daniel? Yeah. Well, <laughs> first of all, I'm the one that I think burned your clutch on your Mini Cooper. So, ah. <laughs> so real quick, funny story for your listeners. So you and I were at a, at a concert together. Uh, we, we arrived there separately and, uh, you know, you did this funny thing. You rolled your ankle. I, I I'm broke, trying to remember. I broke you, my you ankle. You broke your ankle. Yeah. <laughs> at the and, concert. Uh, yeah. And so, uh, you asked me to drive your Mini Cooper home and, uh, it had been a while since I drove a stick. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm pretty sure I burnt your clutch. Like, <laughs> yeah, I don't remember that. I just remember being so glad someone could drive my car because it was a manual. Because it was a manual transmission, right. and I had now a broken ankle. <laughs> I had no. You need two feet to drive that kind of car, and I had uh, no way to drive it. So I was. I ended up not. I traded cars with someone for. Uh, oh, did you? A few, I had to trade cars with someone for a few months. So, so maybe yeah. they noticed what you did, but maybe no, they noticed I'm not. It. Yeah, no, like, <laughs> it, it was, it was definitely, it had been a while since I'd driven a manual, but, uh, yeah, thanks for having me on and I do miss Toronto. So we'll, we'll, we'll get to that part of my journey as well. But, uh, so, uh, uh, I currently direct what's called the SEND Institute at the, uh, Wheaton College Billy Graham Center. It's a partnership between the North American Mission Board and uh, Wheaton College here. And really what I do for uh, my day-to-day is I work with those who plant churches, specifically leaders of organizations, and we think about the future together. So we're a think tank for church planting, and I just help leaders think more strategically about how to better plant churches, especially given kind of the changing demographics and some of the cultural shifts that we're seeing, not just happening over the last few decades, but I mean, I'm sure we'll get into it, even what we've seen over the last few years. And so that's what I've been doing for about uh, four and a half years. Prior to that, I was, like uh, we said, I was in Toronto planting a church in downtown. And um, uh, that church is uh, still uh, amazing going and just was with Mike Seaman last week. And he continues to lead that church. Um, ethnically, I'm Hmong. And so um, I grew up in inner city Detroit. And so even though, even though I'm an American, I lived uh, like 30 minutes across the border from Windsor. And so Uh, I may have even snuck across the border a couple of times to do things that 18-year-olds and 19-year-olds aren't allowed to do (laughs) in the U.S., but... Um, there's uh, a few our, more things. There's a few more things these days with the. Uh, yeah. That's not saying that eighteen Canada is a little, little bit more. Uh, but yeah, yeah. Yeah, a little but, bit um, more easygoing on those. That's things. right. <laughs> but I, I grew up inner city, uh, an inner city kid, predominantly African American neighborhood. Uh, you know, children of refugee immigrants, and so a child of refugee immigrants, and so uh, that was my upbringing. And uh, I, I, I'll fast forward, but I eventually uh, moved to uh, Dallas-Fort Worth, um, and I was an engineer for about uh, nine years, uh, eventually came on staff at a large 
uh, predominantly at the time, predominantly um, uh, Anglo white megachurch in Dallas Fort Worth. And I'm so thankful for my time, but that was the first time I'd ever really immersed myself in a predominantly white um, uh, uh, community. And, uh, mm. you know, I, I joke with folks like I was never afraid walking down an alley in inner city Detroit. But when I got to the affluent suburbs of Texas, I was like deathly terrified. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I didn't, I had never really had a lot of connections with uh, affluent uh, white people. Mm. And so that was the demographic that I identified the least with. And kind of in God's, um, you know, providence, uh, that was where I spent three years, and I have an amazing friends. My mentor, one of my spiritual fathers, I just got off the phone with him. Uh, you know, he still continue, He was the pastor of that church that invited me on staff, and they were the ones that sent us to Toronto, and we planted that church in downtown Toronto. So uh, that's kind of our journey in a nutshell. My journey in a nutshell, and um, just really thankful to to be on with you this uh, on this episode. Well, yeah, and Daniel, uh, you know, as we were saying before we hit the record, uh, you know, we tried to get you on last season, but you went through like a major health thing. And so we're glad you're with us for many reasons, you know, glad you're with us today, but glad that you're with us in general, um, that God's plans for you and his hand in your life has meant that you're still here and you're healthy and, um, you know, there's so much you have to to offer. So uh, we're so glad you're here. Yeah, you know, I mean, uh, thanks for for that, uh, Joanna. I mean, you're referring to I had open heart surgery uh, back in May um, of 2021, and uh, yeah, you know, I don't think um, it was something that I really understood the weight of what I was actually going through until you know I had the surgery, and um, it dawned on me like this was going to change my life. Uh, so just so your listeners know, I had a quadruple bypass and I'm 41. So there's a lot of, you know, um, uh, there's a lot of like questions that I have because I was so young. But, you know, I, I will I will say this, that whenever you have a, a major life altering event like open heart surgery, where, uh, you know, literally um, I could have died, um, you know, it makes you think about like what's important. And it does make you think about like, how do you focus on what's right and when it comes to like things like church, and when it comes to things like, um, uh, you know, the future of Christianity in North America, like it makes you realize that we we put up with a lot of like um, like a lot of fluff, and 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 God in His sovereignty is actually like shaking things up so that the mm. things. This is Hebrews chapter twelve, like twenty six, twenty seven, so that the things that aren't supposed to remain would fall off. And um, that's happened in my life, and I think my what's happened in my life is kind of like a parable of what's happening in the church in North America. There's a lot of things yes. shaking up right now, and the things that are falling off are supposed to fall off because they cannot remain forever. And that verse goes on to say that God's only God's kingdom is unshakable, and because God's like this consuming fire, and uh, He's doing that in my life. And I think in some ways that's parallel to what He's doing in the church of North America. Well. I, we have like a broad sense. We, I mean, probably the people listening to and learning with you today uh, have a broad sense that church has changed pretty radically post-COVID. Um, I talk about, a lot of, I'm sure a lot of us talk about like the speed of the change, especially I like to talk about technology and digital things and all that. So, so on that front, for example, a lot of churches went through like a decade worth of technology upgrade 
in two weeks. <laughs> yeah. Like everyone yeah. had to figure out how to go on the internet uh, at once uh, and grand experiment and people fumbled along the way and have, have figured out some way to meet when they couldn't meet in person. Um, mm-hmm. But also this grand story of the COVID reevaluation of what people's priorities were, what was working for them, what's not working for them. Do you have any, um, I mean, as ascendants, any insight or like what's going, do you have, is there numbers, data, insight? Um, what is actually going on right now in the church? Yeah, you know, I mean, you, you make a really good point. And we, and we actually did quite a bit of like a number of surveys early on last year to try to understand how churches were adjusting. And I can I can kind of give some big shapes around that in just a bit. But I want to come back to a point that you made that I think is real important, that the pandemic in, in some ways fast-forwarded some changes that were already taking place. You know, the, the digital piece, uh, you know, you're, you're spot on. I think for those churches that were waiting to, to do, do ministry digitally, they were forced to really do that. There's a there's an article um, by Ross Douthit uh, from the New York Times, and it's called, uh, he entitles it, uh, Waking Up in 2030. And essentially mm-hmm. his argument is that the pandemic really fast-forwarded us 10 years in, in a lot of ways, uh, not just in technology. Um, but I think technology is a big thing because something that we're going to have to consider now moving forward as churches will probably not get back to this like uh, less less digital, like we'll only become more digital. But, uh, you know, uh, the, the medium is also now a part of the message. And I think those are things that we're going to continue to, to uh, reimagine. So how do you reimagine church attendance around digital participation? And we're not just talking about streaming a service, but we're talking about churches that are entirely trying to figure out how to do meaningful community through, uh, you know, a, a, um, a digital first strategy. Uh, and so that, that's a trend that I think was already happening because there, there were already digital churches that were um, being innovated uh, prior to the pandemic, but the pandemic really gave legitimacy to those who were trying that. As a matter of fact, I was at a, a group uh, with Exponential Ventures um, two months ago in Nashville, and um, it was amazing to see the number of uh, churches that felt validated because they had already developed digital online communities. I met with a church planter who he started a gaming community. And I'm not talking about like, you know, three or four guys that like to play video games and then do Bible study afterwards. And we're, we're talking about the world of Discord and the world mm-hmm. of like streaming gaming and, uh, and, you know, just hundreds of people who feel like this online community is their church. And so they play games, but then they also... Uh, do Bible studies and accountability, and uh, they have found ways to provide accountability and mentorship and discipleship. And, you know, probably prior to the pandemic, stuff like that would have been looked at as like, you know, that's a weird oddity, but like that's become increasingly like acceptable and not just acceptable, but almost like, hey, maybe this is how we reach a certain segment of those who uh, are previously unreached through our traditional means of evangelism and being the church. So I think it definitely has given way to that. I think it fast forwarded that. Uh, and then I think what it's uh, what we've seen it's it's hard to like give sweeping like uh, trends because you know you know the South is a lot different from Canada. So what's happening in the South in Texas, where there's almost no pandemic, or at least they like to pretend there's no pandemic, is so different than what's happening in Alberta, right? Yeah. Um, so, but the reality is that, like, like for those churches who want to get back to normal, 
And I would say there's probably about a third of churches from the early surveys that we did that they were waiting out the pandemic to get back to normal. There's about a third of churches that were really trying to innovate. And then there were about a third of churches that were just kind of like, you know, they were trying to improve, but they weren't necessarily trying to innovate. They were just um, tweaking. And then there was a third that they were just kind of like, you know what, we're going to, we're just going to wait this out. And um, I think what you're going to discover is that those who are innovating are actually going to um, probably uncover new ways to do community, new ways to do uh, content delivery, whether that's a sermon. Uh, I know a church uh, actually in Toronto where they've said, you know what, we're actually going to do a digital first delivery in terms of like uh, sermons. And then all of that, you know, and this is not different necessarily from the multi-site video venues, but it's different in the sense that like now it's like a it's like a, an equipping video type that then the either the small groups or the house churches, whatever the different venues are, will use not as curriculum, but use as actually their platform to begin to think about missionally, how should they engage in the cities and the places around them. And I think that level of innovation is going to pull the church towards the future. Um, and, um, you know, I, I think my, my gut instinct, though, is, Joanna, there is going to be a large number of churches that are hoping that this would, like, get back to normal, and mm-hmm. uh, especially if giving doesn't go down. So for those churches who feel like giving is stable, even though they don't have full attendance in their worship gatherings, I think there's less pressure for them to innovate. It's those who really feel like, you know what, I, man, if we don't like really figure this out, we may not uh, exist in five years. Those are the ones that I feel like are really um, innovating. And lastly, I'll just kind of give you kind of two big ideas. Um, those things are primarily around how do you decentralize? And so, um, so decentralizing ministry, but also decentralized uh, decision-making. Um, and then the other is around um, not just like, uh, not digital per se, but how do you create um, a delivery platforms that can uh, be accessible by as many people as possible? And obviously digital platforms are going to be part of that. Right. I, I guess I'm curious about oh, there's so many threads to pull on there but mm-hmm. i'm thinking about this in the context of church planting which is a sure. focus through the sending of people to do new things um and maybe this is partly a conversation around a global church perspective which daniel i know you have i'm trying to have from my own experiences living all over the world um like in a lot of countries of the world, like pastors aren't professionals. They, um, a lot of countries, like even wealthy countries, like, like in, I, I spent time in France, most of the pastors in the French church were not, uh, paid or if they were paid, it was bivocational. They had another job nine to five and they got a bit of a salary from the church on the side, but the church didn't have the means to give them like a huge salary. It was largely volunteer based boards making decisions. So everything was slow to change. Um, are you seeing that come? Is that one of your sort of predictors of what's coming next as we're planting and building the church? of 2030, will, will we see less kind of quote unquote professional Christians? Mm. Uh, there is, uh, so let's talk about it historically and then we'll kind of, you know, try to predict the future, you know, although, you know, I'll say, you know, I'm, I'm not a profit. I work for a nonprofit. I don't make a lot of profit. So, uh, but we can <laughs> kind of try to peek and see, but historically, uh, 
let's just talk about North America, for instance. Um, the, the two largest Protestant denominations, so outside of Catholicism, uh, are uh, the, the, the Southern Baptists. Uh, they would be the largest Protestant group uh, in North America. And then the Methodists would be the second largest. Um, in comparison to the Presbyterians, the Congregationalists, which really, they don't exist anymore. They became Unitarians, a lot of them. Um, and then, you know, the Anglican Church, which uh, was the Episcopalian Church here in the U.S., and it's still the Anglican Church in, uh, in Canada, and then uh, reinvented uh, about 14 years ago here in the U.S. Um, so if you compare all those, those that had more professional, like, clergy, priestly class, even the Lutherans, they tended to see slower developments in terms of, like, the number of churches being started. And it kind of makes sense because credentialing tends to be a bottleneck. Um, and, um, but then the Methodists, uh, are really early on, they were actually the, the fastest growing movement for a long time until the Baptists began to kind of uh, over, overcome them in the late 19th or late 20th, uh, late 19th century into the early 20th century. And eventually in the 60s, I believe, the Southern Baptists became the largest Protestant denomination. But when you look at that, the, the Southern Baptists, they, they eventually overcame the Methodists because the Methodists began to uh, create a lot of uh, ordination tracks for their uh, pastors, mm -hmm. whereas the Baptists still had very much a bivocational model of ministry and church planting. Essentially, almost anybody could plant churches. Uh, you didn't need to have certain, you know, this comes from the priesthood of all believers, a theological position that thinks that we all have direct access to God, and uh, therefore we can, you know, uh, read scripture for ourselves and then also do missions for ourselves. So that was a big part of the Baptist polity. And I think that what you're, what you're, uh, you're, you're hinting at, what we're seeing all over the world, even here in the U.S. today, the, the, on, the only denomination that I know of that is... Uh, growing year after year is the Assemblies of God uh, here in the U.S. It would be equivalent to PAOC and uh, Canada. Mm -hmm. And uh, in, by and large, it's because they have a lot of bivocational pastors. So um, I think we've always seen the growth of the church tied to less uh, professionalism. I think what we should ask ourselves is if we maintain a professional class, and when I say professional, it's like, you know, air quotes, double air quotes, professional. We have to ask the question, why? You know, so why, why do we need uh, those who are paid vocational? And I, I, I really uh, believe something that Hugh Halter, uh, who's um, written a lot on missional leadership and bivocationalism and and uh, missional movements. He, he said this, he says that there's nothing wrong being uh, vocationally employed, um, but if you're just doing ministry, that's not enough reason to receive a paycheck. He says you're probably vocationally employed because you're actually equipping people and coaching people to do ministry. Mm. And I think that, that to me is really where we should reevaluate how we understand uh, paid vocational ministry, because everybody should be doing ministry. Um, but if you're being employed or if you're receiving, uh, you know, uh, some form of payment for it, it should be because you're actually an equipper and you're helping others to do the same. And so I think in some ways, um, that's, uh, that's, that's the reality. As you kind of project that into the future, there's a movement right now that's not just bivocational, 
but you may have heard of the term co-vocational, which essentially embraces the fact that there are a lot of people that feel called that both their secular, quote-unquote secular vocation is just as aligned with any pastor's ministry vocation. And so they have a co-vocational calling both to their secular job, but also to, you know, the kingdom of God. And uh, I think that movement is steady and it's strong. And I know, uh, you know, I, I know uh, folks who are doing, um, um, oh, why am I having a, a, a absent mind? Um, CrossFit gyms, where oh, they're yeah. planting churches in CrossFit gyms. You know, we, we, all, we all know the coffee shop church, right? I mean, that's been happening for about 20 years. But CrossFit gyms, I mean, so we're seeing these different models of co-vocational ministry. And I think we need more of that just as much as we need more traditional churches. My friends, my friends, it's Christmas time. I cannot forget to pause this conversation to talk to you about the Gifts of Compassion gift guide from Compassion Canada. Every year they launch a gift guide and you can give a gift from the guide any time of the year, but at Christmas they launched a new one for the year ahead and you can give to it all year long, but especially at Christmas, there's a gift for everybody. So if you're still trying to figure out, racking your brain what to do that might be useful or meaningful to people who already have too much or or maybe you just uh, want a creative and fun gift to delight someone. Maybe um, it's someone who loves technology, so you want to give a gift of computer training or maybe they love animals and you want to give popular gifts like goats and chickens and pigs. People who love plants, there's been a huge plant trend in plant babies since the pandemic, so you can even gift give the gift of seeds and plants to people but there's also stuff like fishery training and carpentry workshops there's financial literacy mosquito nets water wells there's all kinds of stuff that you can give all of the gifts are locally sourced in the community by leaders of that community to understand deeply what that community really needs right now and your gift is going to give not just once but you know all year long an opportunity for them to grow and to thrive and to help a family in need so go to compassion.ca slash too of you know I often even myself having worked for churches I've been a pastor I um, have worked in sort of ministry roles professionally now for a long time and now as a in what I'm doing now I'm helping lots of churches um, you know coming alongside them with sort of a more narrowed expertise I hope I can bring the best parts of me and they don't have to pay me for all the worst parts of me <laughs> but uh, um, there's this 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 thing bubbling up that has caught on, I think, to a lot of people's ears through things like Mars Hill, uh, the what the Rise and Fall of Mars Hill podcast. I don't know if you've listened to any of it, sure. but yep. But uh, just the idea of um, you know people are using the words deconstruction and all this kind of stuff. But but this idea that and then we've seen the you know implosion of so many, especially male, but just leaders in the church. Usually those are men. Um, with some sort of implosion. And people are sort of saying, hold on, the system that we built with this paid guy at the front who um, is sort of, it's, it's, it makes me often think of 
of what God said to the Israelites when they wanted a king. Like yeah. we want a king to be like everybody else. Everybody else yeah. has a has a king. We want to be like them. And God says, "But don't you know what's going to happen if you be, if you get a king? Here's the things that are going to happen." And like, "Oh yeah, he's going to like tax you and stuff too." <laughs> and so all this negative stuff comes with the we wanted a leader to look and feel like everybody else around us. And now it feels like in the church the Mars Hill podcast is one of those examples to me. People are um, reevaluating, do we want this kind of a church? So I'd mm -hmm. love to hear from you, Daniel. You know, what are some, I mean, you've mentioned it maybe already in a few different ways, like the CrossFit thing, but, but what are some models? There's no perfect model, but what are some models you're seeing gain some traction right now? Um, if this mega church, we want a king thing, people are saying, hold on, we realize a lot of that was pretty messed up. Um, you know, what are some things you're seeing rise up now, especially post COVID sure. um, that's working or that we have maybe some hopefulness in? Because I think people feel really discouraged. Mm -hmm. Give us some hope, Daniel. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. They should be hopeful. We, we all should be hopeful. Uh, we should we should also be sobered by the realities of the shaking up, you know, the Hebrews 12 passage that I was talking about, because I do think that uh, this is God's doing. Um, you know, let me come back to the mega church thing, though, because I think um, it's it's going to be easy, an easy target for a lot of people to to dismiss like mm -hmm. large churches and then and then to dismiss, uh, um, you know, uh, strong leaders uh, and. Um, I share the concern. Like I, this is me saying that there is a form, there is a form and a version of the mega church that I think is expiring. And when I say that, what I'm, I'm not saying the mega church should or is going to go away, but I think the, you know, we might say the CEO model, you know, use whatever metaphor, and I, you know, that version of. Um, uh, church leader, I think we're starting to see the power of that and the allure of that, um, you know, uh, way, uh, wane. And for a good, for a good, uh, a good end, I think in some ways, um, they're, they're, uh, human beings weren't made to have that much influence. Very few are, very few are. Uh, and that's part of the reason why we haven't had mega churches for a long, long time up until, you know, as a matter of fact, uh, in the in the U.S., there's about 1,800 mega churches, but that's a fairly new thing. Um, you know, mega churches, 2,000 people or more. Canada, I think Canada might have maybe 100. I'm not quite sure the numbers in Canada, um, but uh, United States uh, has about 1,800, and um, and prior to I think the 80s, uh, you know, the number of large churches more than 2,000. I mean, they were in, you know, a very small number of them. And so, um, because I do think that there is, if you trace the development of organizational theory, and I'm, I, I would link a lot of what mega churches are to organizational theory, although there were churches like uh, Moody Church in downtown Chicago, uh, you know, Spurgeon's Church, um, yeah, and there, there were certain, some churches that were large that weren't built around organizational theory. But I'd say most modern churches adapted organizational theory, things that we learn from the business world, we learn from academics, we learn from the military even. 
uh, a lot of these organizational structures we took into and now apply them on a day-to-day basis without even knowing their origins. Not in a, you know, not in a malicious way by any means, but in a very convenient way to develop the systems and the processes in which we run large churches. And I think in some ways, if we don't uh, reinvestigate and reevaluate, again, like the motivation behind that, um, then we'll see an expiring paradigm of not just the megachurch, but the leadership um, uh, criteria that's needed to run a large church. And so I think that is going to come into under evaluation. That's why we have the podcast, and that's why there's there's a bit of a there's a I'll, I'll be honest there's a reckoning um, in some ways of this style of leadership. But I don't. Uh, my message isn't to uh, isn't to sound that alarm to cause people to be suspicious about the church in general. I think, you know, as somebody who is, you know, an insider to the evangelical church, not, not like not like I have special knowledge, but as somebody who's inside, you know, evangelicalism, I think that these are things that we should fully um, embrace and, and know that Jesus is doing that. There are, some, uh, there are some models that I do think that are proving to be helpful in terms of, like, providing better levels of community for others. And so one of them uh, would be the uh, network of uh, microchurches or missional communities, whatever you want to call them. But uh, there used to be, you know, a, a, a movement of house churches. Um, you don't hear about house churches as much anymore. But the version that we got here in North America was kind of very anti-institutional, anti-megachurch. So people started planting churches in their homes. And for many people, that is a very meaningful experience. I would say kind of the iteration beyond that is we are seeing emerge like um, really robust networks of microchurches that are networked together for a common cause but then have very much autonomous leadership. Um, and so and these churches can be anywhere between 12 to 30 people, sometimes even up to 60 people, but they belong to a larger structure that has accountability. Um, and I, you know, I don't think that's a silver bullet, but that's like another iteration mm-hmm. over the last 15 years we see become a sustainable model of church. And probably w- one of the ones that we um, might be most familiar with is Tampa Underground, but there's a lot of versions of that. And then, um, you know, something that I'm really encouraged about, Joanna, is I have a friend of mine. Um, her name is Hannah Gronowski. She's here in Chicagoland area. Yeah, I know her. And yeah. Yeah, she's, she, a, she's I mean, a friend of mine as well. Great. She's just, I mean, just tons of energy. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and, she uh, makes me feel old. <laughs> <laughs> and um, what she's starting isn't so much a church, but, you know, she's providing pathways for younger people to have safe spaces to, number one, process their own questions and their church experiences, if, if they do have a church experience. But then to discover, you know, a pathway for, you know, what has God developed me for and how do I intersect that with some of our greatest needs in our world today? And what I like about that is, in some ways, it starts with process. It starts with... Um, uh, guidance in the form kind of comes a little bit later, you know, and I'm, I'm really interested in seeing a lot of that happen. And that's not because I no longer believe in the forms of church that we have today. 
I just really believe that there are new forms of church that could be discovered. And so to me, what I'm trying to look for when I'm thinking about the future is what are the platforms that are being, when I say platform, not like front stage platform, but think when I say platform, think like Airbnb, Etsy, Uber, you know, kind of mm. these that uh, really become a place where people can come and create with proper guidance, with proper coaching, with proper accountability, but they're able to create and, and innovate. Um, and uh, to me, I think if we can push into that, I think by the time we get to 2030, 2040, we'll see disciple-making movements like we're seeing around the world um, that will eventually emerge into new expressions of churches. And so um, I think it's an interesting transition in the conversation for me uh, to talk about some some issues of multiculturalism, multi-ethnic churches, um, you know, the new wave of immigration of Christians from around the world coming to North America. I want to talk about all that. But one of my worries, I think, when in my experience of, of observing house church models is a lot of them become very tribal very quickly, as in it's, it's a... Uh, three families of white people who are all in their mid thirties and are frustrated with their mega church. Now they hang out on Sundays and have brunch at home and talk about Jesus and pray a little or something. Um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, Meaning like you're just hanging out with the friends you already had. I mean, what, what I, what I like about, I've come from, I've always, not always, almost always in my life, I've been part of very large churches. Mm -hmm. um, And it's, it's sort of like my, mother tongue is being in these large communities, but it's like the language and culture I know best. However, what I, what I like about some of that is that it does force you to be with people of different ages, uh, different, um, you know, socioeconomic backgrounds, um, different cultural backgrounds, etc. where what I see often happening in my own experience anyways of a lot of house church movements is it's just a bunch of people who look and think about, they have the same complaints about their local church and they have kids that are all the same age and they have a similar financial background. So how do we... How do we do that better? <laughs> mm. um, if that's the if that's maybe the move, or, um, I'd love I'd love your um, perspective on that. And you know, mm-hmm. as a move into this whole conversation, we need to have around you know, and multiculturalism maybe isn't even the right word to use, mm-hmm. but I mm-hmm. I I'd love to move us towards there and your observations on that. Yeah. Well, I, I guess uh, I'll give you um, my thoughts around like the initial iterations of house church and what I'm seeing come out of like certain, uh, certain uh, emerging networks of micro churches. Um, you know, there was a sense in which the early, the micro, uh, the house churches of like the eighties the and nineties were somewhat of a backlash to institutional, you know, large churches. And so it was a very like deconstructive thing. Um, I think that has a different spirit than some of these other movements that I'm seeing that diversity may not be represented uh, within the group of 12 people, but it's represented across the network um, Mm. that brings Mm. the uh, microchurches, missional communities, house churches. So let's say, for instance, in Tampa Underground, they're an easy example because they're one where a lot of people can easily understand what they're doing. Um, and they would say they're not doing it perfectly. And, you know, I think they would also say that they're entering into a new season. So, uh, but they're highly innovative. So I don't think they're afraid of change, 
but they will have a micro church um, that is very focused on uh, mentoring and providing identity for inner city African-American girls. And the leadership team of that micro church is, has a very specific assignment um, and they exist in some ways to be a discipleship uh, resource for uh, young African-American girls who are looking for identity. Um, and, um, but they exist in a, an ecosystem, and so they don't exist by themselves. And so um, the leaders will interact with other groups that, you know, uh, work with different demographics. And as a network, they're very diverse across the network, but in their individual works, they might not be. And they find ways to mesh and they find ways to, to work together. But I think, you know, that, that to me is a very different field than the, what you had described where some people are reactionary against large church and they just want to be in a safe space. Um, I, don't, I don't perceive like movements like Tampa Underground is trying to create safe spaces for uh, homogeneity, you know, um, uh, but they will embrace uh, or they will engage specific demographics because strategically, if you're going to give identity to young African-American girls, then, you know, that that's a very specific cause. Um, but, you know, speaking to the larger um, issue of, you know, what what is what is what's the composition of the demographics of North America? U.S. is going to be a little bit different than Canada. Um, but the U.S. Um, specifically by the year 2040, and it probably will happen sooner than that, will for the first time be a no majority, um, will have no majority race. So that means that whites will be less than 50% for the first time by the year 2040. This comes from a guy named William, well, this comes from the U.S. Census. But uh, the guy who talks about this, probably the best and the most of your uh, listeners are interested is a guy named William Frey. He wrote a book called Diversity Explosion. He was actually my sociology professor at the University of Michigan. Uh, and he's a leading demographer at Brookings Institute. And he talks about how if churches, or not churches, but if organizations aren't preparing themselves for this reality, by the time 2040 hits, it'll be somewhat too late. And mm -hmm. to kind of like bring that into the church, what, what he's saying, what I don't think he's saying is that you will not have homogenous churches. I don't think he's saying that. But I think what he's saying is that if you have not thought through the implications of what diversity is going to mean in all segments and domains of society, then your your um, uh, your your model or your understanding of yourselves will continue to like that'll expire. And so, for instance, we're we're almost to a generation now where young people don't notice diversity until they walk into a room and there isn't diversity, right? Um, and so that, that is be increasingly That's becoming, an interesting way to say it, yeah. Yeah, I mean, and so, I mean, because my kids don't talk about multi-ethnicity and multi-racialism, multiculturalism the same way, because to them, it's much more implicit and a given than the generations before, you know? That doesn't mean that, like, they shouldn't learn the nuances and all those things, but it means that, like, like it's becoming more and more of reality, whereas I think for a certain generation and maybe let – me, let me just put the cutoff age group at 42. I don't know your age, Joanna, but I'm 41. <laughs> Under 42. And, yeah. Oh, you are. So 43. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> no, 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 no. I'm no, I'm 35. <laughs> oh, okay, okay. You're safe. Yeah. Oh, you're well, you're really safe then. <laughs> I'm saying those who are 42 and above. There we go. Because I'm 41. Um, 
their their mentality is uh, is still by and large uh, a boomer and Xer mentality, which was birthed in you know uh, if you think about when the boomers uh, you know in the uh, 50s and 60s predominantly, and the Xers are going to be in the you know uh, late 60s and uh, 70s, uh, like. The United States by 1980 was still 85 percent white in 1980, mm. and so all of our institutions and organizations were formed, whether or not they, um, uh, you know, realized it or not, they were formed during a time when uh, America and probably Canada as well was still largely white, right? And uh, I, I say it this way: Rick Warren, when he planted Saddleback Church, which is an amazing church, and I consider Rick Warren an amazing pioneer. He started his church in 1980, and America was still 85% white at that time. And, um, and we're talking about 2040, which is how long from now? Like 18 years? Less than that? Or maybe 19 years? And uh, where you're going to have uh, whites that are 49%, you know. And so these realities are, are happening really fast. Uh, phrase book, diversion, uh, diversity explosion, gives a lot of implications for how to understand what that means, how to lead your organization. Um, and I think when it comes to, I'll, say, I'll, I'll end with this, when it comes to the local church, I don't think we should think of diversity in, ter- in terms of quota, meaning 20% of this, 15% of that. I think what it really should um, help us to think is what does meaningful belonging look like regardless of the composition of your church? So if you have 2% that is a minority group, like ask the question, what does meaningful belonging really mean to them? And um, I, I wrote an article, I can send it if you want to, you can post it, but there are, I think, four ethnic meaningful belonging markers mm. that we need to look out for. One is, you know, how do you, how do you become a theological community given the different um, uh, uh, composition of the different groups? Uh, number two is how do you actually make decisions better based on uh, the diversity of the group? Um, and number three is to how do you um, um, help, uh, how does the gospel help regulate ethnic pride? Um, and, um, and then number four is how do you help people through the gospel put away some of their, um, uh, ethnic preferences, not hide their ethnic identity, but to put aside some of their ethnic preferences to show unity towards the gospel. Um, and I think these are dynamics that, um, we used to think only urban churches had to wrestle with this, but it's more and more all churches are having to think about this. everybody this episode is brought to you by the church co if you don't know the church co you have to check them out they're literally building people websites for free you sign up you choose a plan and then they have a team of web designers build you a website at no additional charge hey you might already have a website you probably have a website or maybe you're thinking of building one for yourself you might already have one for your church and this site that they're going to build you is going to look as good if not better than sites that cost thousands of dollars and they have all kinds of unique features that a lot of church websites don't have like church online and chms integrations digital prayer small groups live events sermons and so much more it's christmas now the new year is coming maybe it's time to launch into the new year with a new website a 
facelift on your website. So the best part of this though is the price. They do all of this, and this is why I love it, for $29 a month. And right now, they're offering listeners of this podcast 20% off your first year when you use the code digital, like word made digital. So I think it's a no-brainer. If you need a website, you can find out more at thechurchco.com. And don't forget, use the discount code digital for that 20% discount. That's thechurchco.com. And hey, there's a link down below in the show notes. Just tap on that. We'd love to send you there. I appreciate what you say about a generation coming up where they notice when it isn't diverse. Like you're, you're not going to, you notice when every picture speaking at an event, uh, the faces of all the people speaking at the event, it's all a bunch of white guys or, uh, you show everyone's have with a, with the microphone in the room or, uh, the people of power above you in a workplace, they're all, they look the same. Um, mm-hmm. You notice it then, but you don't think about it when it's when it's different. Even just watching, uh, just I was re- looking this weekend um, at the Instagram and TikTok stories of, you know, a guy who was like 18 years old in my church community, and we're, we're we have connections through his family, and so I'm I'm it's not weird. I'm looking at his social media. He's at a football game. He's posting these pictures. And and it was just this very ethnically diverse group of people all hanging out together. And I was just thinking about how, because I'm like a marketer, I'm thinking this, these photos look like they were set up by a marketing company to (laughs) position multiculturalism. And for him, it's just his friends. (laughs) Like they're all just hanging out at the football game and it was, it's his normal life. Um, So I appreciate, Daniel, what you're saying about that. But you're talking about thinking through how to not make it tokenism, how to Mm -hmm. not have it just check off some percentages. I think um, a lot of my experience in churches, predominant white churches, has been um, we talk about multiculturalism, but what we mean is we want multi-ethnic churches. I mean, we want people of different skin colors and backgrounds, but we actually want them to look, act, sing, sound, dance, praise God, pray. We want it to look like we look, we, like mm-hmm. a white person. Um, so we, we want them for the token. Um, so, I mean, when you when you say the thing about the, you know, the shifting uh, the 49% by 19, or sorry, by 2040, um, white people will be no longer majority in America. I don't know what the stats are in Canada on that. Uh, I don't know what year that will happen here. Um, but for those who are afraid when they hear that, and maybe mm-hmm. they hate to admit that that sounds scary to them because it's all they've ever known is being a majority. Um, do you have, can you give a pastoral word to people about the change that's coming? Um, you know, how we can sure. um, be less afraid? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, uh, I really appreciate that question because at least here in America, um, I feel like we went through two years of uh, purposeful stirring up of fear mm-hmm. uh, around uh, diversity and and immigrants and all that. Um, I think my most hopeful word that I want to provide is that number one, God God knows the the narrative of all groups of people, even 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 the. Uh, families and the heritage of those who would trace themselves back to the Confederacy. 
um, you know, I mean, let's let's say let's say we're speaking to kind of those who have a Confederate background, and that's probably not a large number of people, but um, but even that, like God knows your heritage and God knows the things to preserve, the things not to preserve. Mm. When we look at the reality of uh, something like immigration in the United States. Uh, one out of four people that come to the United States are already Christian. This is like such a really well-known, documented phenomena. Like uh, even uh, sociologist uh, Stephen Warner, who's a sociologist at the University of Chicago, he says that immigration is not the de-Christianization of America, but it is the de-Europeanization of Christianity. And um, what we're... What's happening in the U.S. is that we're becoming more aligned with global Christianity. And although that may feel like a little bit of like, you know, oh, some of us feel like we're losing influence or losing ground. Overall, that actually positions the church in America to look more like the global church, because that's really what's happening. Um, And to me, like the good news is, hey, you're not alone. Like God is sending... Christians, and uh, I literally know, you know, I, sometimes I'll tell a joke like, you know, you know, like back in the early 20th centuries, you know, white people would sit in a room and they'd draw out a whiteboard and this is how we're going to reach Africa and India and Latin America. Like I literally know Indians and Asians and Latin Americans that sit in a room with the whiteboard and they ask themselves, how do we reach white people? And mm. so uh, they're returning the favor in a sense. Yes, um, and I think uh, in some ways, like that is, it w- should be a welcome thing, you know. And not everybody that's coming and immigrating, and again, Canada has a, a, a recent and recent per capita. Canada has accepted more immigrants than um, the U.S., especially over the last administration, um, and that's going to change the composition. It already is changing the composition of Canadian um, uh, government. And I think in some ways, for those of us who understand the, the New Testament church, Christians have always been best when we were at the margins, when we had to subversively influence. Um, if we were mistaken, if we, were, if we mistakenly thought that Christians were the majority and we wielded power politically and socially, I think Jesus is making clear again for us that, you know, you actually do better at the margins. And um, in some ways, I think that is um, a good thing. When Christians, um, because of our sinful nature, when we become the majority, uh, and that's not to say that I don't want to see Christianity, um, you know, grow, because obviously we want to see more people come to know Jesus. But if we think if we think that we have the majority cultural power, um, we often tend to make decisions that marginalize uh, others and that benefit ourselves. And so I think, um, you know, what's happening is um, that there's a, not a rebalancing of power, but there's a reawakening that, hey, you know what? It doesn't matter what our skin color is. We've actually been better as a church when we're at the margins and we're speaking prophetically from the margins. I mean, you, you wrote a whole book on this that's coming out. Uh, in 2022, inalienable, how marginalized kingdom voices can help save the American church. 
Um, do you want to do you want to speak a little bit about the book? Um, I mean, you're you're basically talking about it now, but do you want to say sure. anything more about the book? Um, yeah, yeah. Thanks. I, I appreciate the the mention. We were uh, we we just finished writing the last. Uh, uh, final draft of it. Uh, so Eric Costanzo, who's a pastor in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and uh, Matt Sorens, who's my neighbor and also uh, the church mobilizer for World Relief. Um, we've enjoyed really uh, struggling with these themes and topics. And um, a big part of our research for the book is to really understand how the world has arrived here. You know, we used to, you know, many people have this saying that, you know, the, the, the world is coming, the nations are coming here so that we can reach them. But they forget that, no, the nations are coming here also so they can reach you. And so there's a, <laughs> there's, <laughs> there's a part of that dynamic that we're trying to highlight as well. Uh, and then, uh, so the Global Voice um, women, uh, you know, we write our social location as we're male evangelicals. And uh, we uh, really are saying that we have missed so much in the American church specifically uh, because we have marginalized um, uh, women as leaders and as voices, uh, and then you know, you know, uh, the poor, uh, and um, uh, I, I mentioned you know how Christians often work best from the margins. Uh, I'm reminded of uh, uh, Rene Padilla, who just passed away. He's a missiologist from uh, Latin America, and he writes about uh, the Galilean option or the Galilean Jesus. And to be Galilean in Jesus's time meant that you were podunk, you were a podunk person, that you didn't, this was not Jerusalem, Jesus, this was, you know, uh, from the outskirts, you know. Backwater um, with a funny backwater. accent. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> this And this is where all the, uh, funnily, well, not funnily, but interestingly enough, this is where all the uprisings against the Roman government came from, was from the outskirts. They were not the urban, um, you know, citizens, and uh, Jesus came from that, and uh, that's where his a lot, many of his disciples in Capernaum, you know, they were fishermen. Um, that's where a lot of them. That's that was their social location, and uh, you know, I think that speaks volumes about like where, um, where uh, not necessarily social location, but in our own self, um, you know. Um, uh, uh, humbling, like Christians need to remind ourselves that like we're when we're weak, that's when we're the most usable by God. And seeing the poor uh, and the marginalized, you know, that's that's a great reminder for us that that's all of us. Um, and then how do we leverage our and steward, you know, our resources in a way that's equitable to others? So. Uh, you know, we, we struggled with it because it's a big topic, um, but I, I'm really excited about just how God might use that because I think it's the right time for us to start talking about um, these things, not just at a very high level, but at an organizational level. What does this mean for our church? What does this mean for our academic institution? What does this mean for our network? Because if we don't do the work now, we'll be far behind by the time 2040, 2050 hits. This is a, is a last question. Um, when you're thinking of the character or the qualities you're looking for in a church planter in 2022, 
Um, what are, and, and maybe you can say it by the opposite. These are things we don't, we're not looking for this. Um, but when you think these, this is the, you know, when the harvest is plentiful and the workers are few and people listening saying, is it me? Is this something I need to do? What are some of the, the things that you're looking for? Both like literally at the Senate mm-hmm. Institute, what are some of those characteristics sure. um, that you want to see and say, this is the kind of man, this is the kind of woman uh, mm-hmm. we think could really make a go at this? Yeah. That's a great question, a good way to end our time. Um, so I'll, I'll give two categories to kind of juxtapose each 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 one of them. So the ones that are tended to uh, to to be examined or assessed right now in the church planning world uh, tends to be around like uh, organizational leadership and entrepreneurialism, which I, which I still think are are valuable. You know, so things like vision casting, uh, leading a team, uh, administration. Um, uh, you know, uh, preaching or communication, uh, to use a broader term. These tend to be the uh, characteristics of a, you know, of a um, capable church planter, you know, and then you can kind of whittle the, down, uh, the list down to, uh, to about eight. And that basically um, we're describing a really good organizational leader that can communicate pretty decently. And I wouldn't say that we need to do away with that list because I think there's a lot of that that list that I think you know we, you know that that's true across the board for any kind of startup situation. Um, there's some things that I think we can de-emphasize. You know, we I think we have overly emphasized like great preaching. Um, mm-hmm. I, that's probably something that like you know like to me I believe in shared teaching. So if you're the primary leader, you don't need to be a great teacher if other people can teach on your team. But let me juxtapose that to another list that I think is emerging. Um, resilience, that's a, that's a huge theme. As a matter of fact, in the midst of the pandemic, I think we'll see, we've already seen a lot of pastors resign, but I think we're learning that there's a, there's a, a cultural upheaval that's happening that resilient leaders are going to be the ones that last. Uh, empathy, I think empathy is going to be huge. Uh, it is huge, but I think empathy is, you know, we have often dismissed empathy as being overly pastoral or being overly, you know, concerned with people's uh, emotions. And it has less to do with that. I think empathy has more to do with the ability to read people and read situations and to appropriately apply either the right words or the right strategy. That to me is high level empathy, and I think that that's completely needed. Or else you have this top down leadership where you're putting Saul's armor on everybody. And uh, I think that style of leadership is going to expire. And then the, the, the third thing is what we talked about uh, just in the last five minutes is uh, somebody who's culturally intelligent. Uh, they don't have to be like the most uh, um, apt uh, and culturally savvy person, but their ability to grow in their intelligence of cultures, I think that's going to be a big, a big um, uh, indicator of whether somebody can um, successfully lead um, a new church into the future. Well, Daniel, you're leaving me uh, prayerful, I, I must say. Uh, if people listening are paying attention, these are the things we're praying for um, in the people building our churches, the people who are maybe us listening and have to go do this and feel convicted, or uh, the people we're going to be led by. Uh, these are some of the characteristics we're looking for as God is doing a new thing in a new way in the same old place. 
uh, here anyways at home. Um, Daniel, thank you so much. If people want to find you or find some of the work you're, you've referenced, uh, you know, you're an academic, so there's lots of articles and reading. And where, where do you want to send people today to find you or find more of what you're looking at? Yeah, absolutely. You can go to um, send, S-E-N-D, sendinstitute.org, and you can see some of our resource resources, research, and articles that we put out. Um, and then uh, if you want to hear my daily musings, you can catch me on Twitter, uh, K-O-O-B-X-W-M. And what I does post that stand things. for? That's actually my Hmong name. Oh, so, wow. And it's uh, it's not a phonetic spelling, but Hmong people, we do use a Romanized alphabet system that was developed by uh, Catholic French priests in the 50s, actually. Hmm. And so although it's Roman letters, like you wouldn't pronounce it the way that it, that it reads. So it's actually pronounced Gongsut, but that's what I use for my social media. Awesome. Well, yep. Daniel, thanks so much for your work, your time. Thanks for having me your um, thoughtfulness around these issues. I, um, I'm really grateful that people like you are leading and a voice, um, uh, yeah, trying to help us change and do it in an empathetic and gentle way. So thanks so much, Daniel. Thanks for having me. Daniel, thank you so much for that conversation. Next week, we have Chadi Orozco. She is an author, podcaster, speaker, showrunner, creative director. She's got a job in New York and an address in Florida. And I can't wait for you to get to know her, be inspired by her. So see you next week for that. But thank you so much to our sponsors, to The Church Co., a website building company you've got to check out. Link in the show notes. And Compassion Canada, who has an amazing gift guide for Christmas. Again, link in the show notes. Check out our YouTube channel if you want to get a back catalog of these podcasts. You want to check out tutorials. We want you to link, rate, subscribe, share this podcast with a friend. It's how we get the word out and how if it helped you, it can help somebody else. So, hey, don't hold it to yourself. Go go share this episode with somebody. And, of course, we'll see you on the Digital Church Facebook group because we want you to get our new newsletter coming out in 2022. See you next week. Thanks for listening to the Word Made Digital Podcast with Joanna LaFleur. If you like this content, hit subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Rate it and share this episode with your friends. Head over to wordmadedigital.com for more free tools and helpful content for creatives and communicators. We love helping you communicate the best news in the world.